Good afternoon. It's Friday the 15th of October 2021, just after one o'clock. Well, welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me in the studio today, Patrick Henningsen from 21st Century Wire. Welcome to the programme, Patrick. It's great to be with you, Mike. Uh, and we're going to get straight on with, uh, with Italy, Patrick. Yeah, things are really kicking off right now uh, in Europe, Mike, and uh, leading the sort of charge on uh, the, the pushback against vaccine mandates. It's here in Italy, and this is exactly what you're seeing right now. This is pushback in Italy. Believe it or not, Mike, the government extended the mandate not just to essential workers, not just to government workers, not just to uh, key corporations, but to every single employee in the country. So you can imagine now this has basically caught uh, all of those sort of extra folks that were sort of undeclared, and now they're sort of making their presence known. And this is what exactly what you're seeing. What's really key about this, and obviously this is about no green pass, mm -hmm. this is pushback against this policy. So they're really pushing back against this. The, some of the unions uh, members or leaders are been co-opted by government. We're seeing this pattern in uh, other countries as well, including mm -hmm. the UK and the US. Uh, with the teachers unions and so forth but then other ones are basically pushing back against this the port of Trescio in northern italy this is the main gateway for goods coming in to europe and they're planning a full strike mm -hmm. uh within i think the next uh, day or two if, if it hasn't begun already i'm not sure uh, but we're getting uh, details uh, from this via robin minotti's uh, telegram channel He's keeping, uh, keeping us updated on this, uh, so really important. And just look at how the, uh, the, the nuance here, I just have some images here from the Italian protests. Look at that apartheid, and they're doing their signs also, some of them in English as well. So COVID pass equals apartheid, that's, that's quite a strong statement. It is, but it's nothing like what I'm gonna show you right now. Look at this, no green pass. Notice the lightning bolts on the end, uh, reminiscent of the uh, Nazi SS. And uh, that's exactly where they're going here. No pass, uh, no green pass. So they're basically equating it to, you can see the swastika yeah. tucked under our little uh, headline there. And then they even got into parliament, Mike, look at this. Uh, canny protesters dressed in suits made their way in there and a few uh, attractive uh, Italian women as well. No green pass. So they basically took over. Now, the last time people protesting invaded some kind of capital building or equivalent, it, it was accused of being a coup. Is that what's uh, attempted here? An insurrection. Yes. If this happened in Washington under uh, Nancy, Pelosi, Nancy Pelosi's House leadership and Chuck Schumer's Senate leadership, that would be called uh, an insurrection and sedition, uh, basically, because they breached the hallowed grounds of, of government, or the holy temple of democracy. Mm -hmm. So that wouldn't be allowed in Washington, of course. Yes, okay, now let's uh, come back to the UK. And uh, well, on Wednesday's program, we highlighted the Royal uh, Television Society's uh, uh, symposium and session 13 about that, of that was all about uh, the press and whether how good a job the press was doing against disinformation. Um, and- uh, Where's the disinformation thereafter? It's on the internet, right? Yes, right. Yeah. yeah, so let's, let's just look at, uh, at a piece of uh, press disinformation. Um, and uh, here is the independent. Nearly one in five most critically ill COVID patients are unvaccinated pregnant women, NHS says. Now, um, the first part of this article, they largely get accurate in, in the sense, well, I'll show you what the, what the NHS press release said in a minute, but they, they talk about the NHS press release in the first few paragraphs. Uh, and then they go on to introduce other information which isn't really relevant to the NHS press release, but it implies that it is. It implies that it's, it's, uh, 
it's related information and and, and it talks about numbers, 80,000 this, 163,000 that, or 183,000, sorry, that. Uh, and the implication is that one in five is therefore a really large number. But look, this was the Independent, but this article was covered, the same headline in City AM, The Sun, more or less the same, uh, Coventry Live, so it came to the, the local media as well, more or less the same. It crossed the Atlantic, Patrick, to the New York Times, one in five of England's most critically ill COVID patients are unvaccinated pregnant women, a study finds. And this probably was the, the worst example of, of the articles. And this was featured in Twitter's main news feed. Yes. And other main news feeds on social media. So great traction if it gets into the New York Times. You're saying that they did an even worse job They did here? an appalling job uh, here because they absolutely conflated what the NHS said with a whole lot of, lot of other information, which made it seem a much worse situation than it is. Uh, Fort, even Fortune got involved in it. 20% uh, of severely ill patients with COVID in the UK are unvaccinated pregnant women. So look, here is the original press release. Um, it's on the NHS website. It was published on the 11th of October. The headline is NHS encourages pregnant women to get uh, COVID-19 vaccine. And so what do they actually say on this? They say, since July, one in five COVID patients receiving treatment through a special lung bypass machine, sorry, lung bypass machine, uh, were expectant mums who have not had the first jab. Now, to put that statement uh, in a little bit of context, I think there's something in the region of 480,000 pregnant women in the UK uh, at any particular moment in time. Um, and uh, I believe uh, the latest statistic available for how many of them are in uh, intensive care units is uh, 14, and that's from the uh, 8th of October. So that's 14 women in ICUs, which is, includes this special treatment, which is what this press release is about. So in the whole country. Uh, yes. Uh, so pregnant women, they say, have been treated with a therapy called extracorporeal membrane uh, oxygenation, ECMO, uh, used only when a patient's lungs are so damaged by COVID that a ventilator cannot maintain oxygen levels. Well, here's the first inaccuracy in the NHS uh, press release, because, of course, this therapy is not only used for people with COVID. Um, so their statement, just to re reiterate, was only used only when a patient's lungs are so damaged by COVID uh, that a ventilator cannot maintain oxygen levels. Well, Mayo Clinic, just to give an example, lists the types of conditions that people would be treated with ECMO for. That includes heart attack, heart muscle disease, inflammation of the heart muscle, life-threatening response to infection, sepsis, uh, low body temperature, uh, post-transplant complications, shock caused by heart not pumping through uh, enough blood, uh, some lung conditions, uh, which may include uh, acute respiratory distress syndrome. I.e. pneumonia. Well, so pneumonia is on the list. Yeah. Uh, blockage of a pulmonary artery, uh, COVID-19 is on the list. Uh, but also, uh, if the fetus uh, inhales waste products in the womb, uh, and there's a medical term for that, which I'm not going to attempt to repeat, uh, flu is another one, uh, uh, various other forms of pulmonary problems. So, so the statement uh, from the NHS that it's only in the event that COVID has done severe damage isn't quite correct. Uh, but then they went on to say, out of all women uh, between the ages of 16 and 49 on ECMO in intensive care, pregnant women make up almost a third, 32%, up from just 6% at the start of the pandemic. But in this statistic, that is not just COVID patients, or at least they don't say that that's just COVID patients. That's all patients on ECMO, yeah. okay? So... Even within the NHS article, there's conflation of data. 
And so this, I'm afraid, is at, at best disingenuous. So, so what's your best guesstimate? Well, what, if, if based on what you're seeing there, how many, how many pregnant women uh, are being treated for severe on, in the ICU? Uh, in, it's, with that, it's impossible to say because all we know is that there's 14 pregnant women in ICU on the 8th of October. That includes women that were on ECMO. So it's less than 14 is the correct answer. So, so if it's less than 14, let's just say it's 14. That means that according to that headline, there's only 70 severely ill people with COVID in the this country. This is the, the most severe illness, yes, the that's most, correct. And that can't be, there, there has to be more than that because we're, we're being, they're touting these great numbers oh. of uh, ICUs, cases, deaths. Uh, you know, so so I mean, there's something fishy about this. It doesn't make sense at all. But the key point that, that I really wanted to reiterate here is that as those three individuals were sitting on the stage uh, expressing their disgust at the amount of disinformation and misinformation on the Internet, um, we have here a headline which was replicated right across the mainstream press with no fact checking or no context. And in fact, quite the opposite, the mainstream press. Uh, attempted to conflate a whole bunch of other data, which was unrelated to this specific press release, to make the numbers sound much bigger because they didn't want to mention fourteen, mm -hmm. right? So, uh, so that's that's the main point. It's it's disgraceful so, disinformation from. So, what's the point of the disinformation? What's the object of it, Mike? Well, you, fear, you, of course, is, is but it's major, promoting something. It's isn't promoting it? the vaccine, one hundred percent, with, with, with pregnant, pregnant women, with yes. pregnant women, encouraging more pregnant women to get the vaccine. Uh, and saying that that's absolutely safe, and they have the the NHS is deriving that opinion from the CDC in the United States. They're using the C Center for Disease Control in the U.S. as their sort of barometer for that, because the CDC claims that it's doing a, a study on pregnant women uh, v on, with their new V-safe system, registering all these pregnant women. Uh, they claim a total of uh, the last round, 166,000. Right. That's where you got that number. And so they're running uh, an off-the-books clinical trial, a government agency that's highly political, has a, a, a director who's a political appointee. Mm. So it's not in the CDC's interest to find any problems with the vaccine and pregnant women. And how would they know after three months or four months or six months? or whatever they claim they know. So they've registered all these people to make this big data set, Mike, and then they're claiming that it's totally safe. They can't possibly make any broad statements like that, not at least for a few years after studying this properly, but instead you're getting these assurances from these authoritative sources. Social media is using the CDC and the WHO and these other uh, so-called authoritative sources to basically prosecute uh, a wave of censorship across every platform and myself i have been uh, a victim of that uh, recently with twitter okay so the cdc's word is not gospel okay neither is the who they can get it completely wrong they are politicized in fact the cdc won't even use the word pregnant women They're, if you look at this study in the cdc it it says pregnant people hmm. so that is an indication so they they're non-gendering uh, women on yes. the CDC. That is an indication that there's political agendas running deeply through these agencies. They're highly politicized. Look at the NHS you showed us that said pregnant women. Mm -hmm. You go over to America, pregnant people. That is politics. That's all it is, plain and simple. It has nothing to do with science or biology. That's a fact. I'm not Dave Chappelle saying that. It's just me. Okay. 
So uh, I just want to put that on the table. But the point of this is, is there a risk with regards to pregnant women in terms of the uh, placenta forming uh, protein, uh, developing an antibody reaction to a protein that's essential for women to form the human placenta uh, uh, before uh, before they give birth to develop the baby. So let's look at this. Now this is from Mike Eden and Robin Manani's uh, Telegram channel. He wanted to highlight this study. This was from a few years ago. Accumulation of nanocarriers in the ovary, a neglected toxicity risk. I think this is from 2012. This is what Eden's saying. There's detail here and I think it's important. People need to pay attention. Let's read this. Mike Eden saying, recently a paper was published demonstrating exactly uh, the concern we've written about a team undertook a study of the Pfizer vaccine in a small number of women measuring antibodies to the spike protein uh, and to syncytin-1. Uh, the results were shocking. From the earliest time after the infection, all women- Injections. Or, sorry, from the injection, all women had measurable levels of antibodies against the placental protein, syncytial-1, uh, even before antibodies to the spike protein increased. That's very significant. If you look at the the time order this is happening. Worse, the authors proceeded to cover up and lie about their results. So you can get this study here online. This is, I believe, Science Direct, accumulation of nanocarriers in ovaries and neglected toxicity risk. And then there's also, that's from May. And then this, there's more recent one. Uh, Actually, we have another report. This is the same report. There's others uh, online that we don't don't have with us. Um, uh, Unfortunately, they didn't make it through. But I had, read the leaked report uh, conducted for Pfizer in relation to the the regulatory submission in Japan. This was a study of distribution, which you've covered before, Mike, of the vaccine envelope after the injection into rats. This showed an unusual tissue distribution. There was 10 times more in the ovaries and spleen than in most other tissues. Then a real shocker. I came across this paper in 2012 stating that these lipid nanoparticles uh, formations all accumulated in the ovaries uh, of several species. Okay, so you can get more detail on that if you just go to Telegram and join Robin Minotti and Michael Eden's channel if you haven't already. It's an excellent, informative channel. Uh, we'll also say join 21st Century Wire as well, official on Telegram as well. We do syndicate uh, Eden and uh, Minotti's work there. Uh, so this is what Chris Whitty's saying, Mike. Uh, he's saying it's going to be a dark winter. As winter as a whole, I regret to say, is going to be exceptionally difficult for the NHS. Where he, he's probably exactly right, because, but not as a result of external factors, 100% as a result of his policies and the policies of the British government. And, and you could have taken this quote and attached this to every single year on every single winter going back. 20 years. 20 years. Yeah. You go... Google the stories. Well, yeah, the headlines are all there. You've covered Everyone, them. Yes. You've covered them in the past. So that's setting the stage, Mike, for this dark winter, this uh, this disaster, this Holocaust that's coming supposedly because of the flu and all these different viruses that have now uh, reached uh, great proportions in the in the minds of men. Uh, so here's Sanjay Javid basically going to task with the GPs. Sanjay Javid is playing to tear up the rule book in new GP package. What's he saying here? We'll bring his head in there because we're covering up his uh, handsome picture there. The GP's union rejects the health secretary Javits 250 million pound funding package, basically encouraging doctors to actually see their patients face to face. So the doctors 
unions do not want to uh, have GPs all seeing patients face to face. They're saying it's not safe. They're saying that it's the front line now and it's dangerous, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, so those GPs not increasing the numbers of in-person appointments will appear on a league table, believe it or not, or even face financial sanctions. That's basically they won't get a chunk of that 250 quarter of a billion pound wedge there, Mike. Yeah. Uh, so that's the punishment. So the doctors union leaders complaining that uh, they're already facing increasing levels of abuse from patients because media and politicians running campaigns to get back to pre-pandemic normal services. I can't imagine why people would be upset after a year and a half of uh, telephone appointments no, and being I, I put on hold. I, I can't mean, imagine why people would be upset about not getting a cancer diagnosis for six months because they can't get a referral from their GP or or having to beat down the door of the GP just to get a to get you know we we know someone who who actually had to do this. Um, so you know, there's one appointment though where you always get an in person visit. Do you know what that is? No, it's guaranteed 100. percent You will be able to see your GP face to face for the COVID shot. Okay. That's right. 100%. You will get to see the doctor. Everything else is negotiable. So anyway, do you see what's happened here? Well, it's, this goes on. It gets more interesting. We flagged this statement up because it's particularly profound, Mike. Uh, it has been argued by campaigners that face-to-face -face appointments offer medics the opportunity to pick up on symptoms that otherwise may have been missed over the telephone. Well, there's, there's a saying that involves the word Sherlock that, that comes to mind at that point. So this one, this is Captain Obvious uh, Blue Rosette Award here. We're giving that because the, the geniuses uh, in the media and politics, they never cease to amaze us. What a profound discovery there. And so the NHS waiting list uh, hitting a record high. They're claiming it's 6 million, Mike. It's likely to be much higher than that. So the number that it's likely to be, uh, according to recent reports, is 13 million. Yeah. 13 million. So this is what they're saying in the PR. Uh, and so apparently 5,000 patients sitting more than 12 hours on trolley, trolleys in A&E. Uh, that's just, that's actually par for the course on a good year. Okay, so nothing new there. And so, but let's just turn the clock back, get Javid out of the way. Let's bring in this guy. You remember him? Fred so. Remember Wet Feet, Matt Hancock. So this was uh, just July 2020. And he was, he was saying, UK Health Secretary says GP consultations should be all remote. So he wanted everything remote. Yeah. This is the tech uh, wonder boy, uh, Matt Hancock. Wanted to put it all on uh, WhatsApp and uh, Facebook and everything. So that's what he was saying back then. And so the doctors were actually pushing back. And look how... The medical community has suddenly shifted. This is September 2020. Uh, Hancock's call for all GP consultations to be remote is unrealistic. GPs could miss vital clinical information and it would damage the doctor-patient relationship. That, so the, the doctor's union now has done a U-turn. This was their policy a year. 180 degrees? Uh, actually, yeah, 180 degrees. Um, soon to be 360 degrees by the looks of it with the size of that uh, fantastic funding package. So, so this brings up a question, and we, we have to say, the, the labor unions, Mike, have played a massive role mm. in school shutdowns. We're talking about teachers' unions. Mm. So how much of this is down to the union leadership uh, and how much is down to the rank and file? I think it has more to do with the tight relationship between union leadership and the political powers mm. now. And this is the problem. So, so they're playing both sides of the argument? 
Yes, they are. And so here's the problem. So this is school shutdowns. Teachers say it's not safe to come and teach with the kids running around who who don't get COVID. Yes, and want the kids masked. Okay. Mm-hmm. Other unions, Mike, uh, have also demanded uh, these incredibly unattainable safety uh, conditions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so this is basically driving uh, lockdowns. It's driving shutdowns. It's driving all of these things. And so traditionally, and so who's being hurt by this? Well, it's the working class. It's the it's the working classes and so forth. So where's the political left? on this issue. So there, the, a lot of them know, a lot of them who are anti-lockdown, they're afraid to come out against the union leaders. Okay, you saw in Melbourne, the union leaders stabbed the construction union in the back, the builders in the back. They sided with the government and guess what happened? It kicked off massive protest in Melbourne, led by the rank and file, the guys who actually work, okay, the union membership. So you have this, the bourgeois left, the middle class left, they don't want to say any bad word about unions because they're afraid it's going to hurt their overall political cause. Right. So they're totally aligned with corporate interests, with uh, elite government, with transnational big tech. Okay, this is who the kind of bourgeois socialist left is now aligned with. So we found this uh, Simpson, Simpsons mem here, which really just kind of sums it all up. It's, uh, is it strange that my interests align with the corporate with corporate media, big tech government, the wealthy elite, and big pharma? And he's saying, no, no, that's just a coincidence. I'm still anti-establishment. <laughs> so I thought that was just such a perfect, uh, that, that sums up where we're at. And so this is a big problem. And as we said many times, and I've said as well uh, uh, in speeches and so forth, Mike, it's the left-right paradigm is finished. Yeah. It's been obliterated by what's happened, especially in the last couple of uh, years. And now it's up and down. It's it's the forces at the top and everyone else, and and up is pushing down on everybody below. Yeah. That's the new paradigm. It's not right left. It's top bottom. Okay. And the sooner people get that through their heads and realize that's the reality you're living in now in 2021, uh, I think the the chances of making some progress and making our way through this in one piece is uh, much greater. Much greater. Yeah. Um, okay. Well. Uh, it's a bad day for the testing regime, or is it? Um, so oh, I like those. Are those the uh, Chinese trinkets? Uh, those are some Chinese trinkets there, yes, those indeed. The 50p. Now, by the way, the Chinese trinkets we're not allowed to use for international travel when we're coming back because they've just announced that uh, PCR is no longer required if you're fully vaccinated, so you can use the Chinese trinkets, but you've got to use the Chinese trinkets that are uh, supplied by a private supplier. You can't use the NHS uh, supplied Chinese trinkets because basically the government doesn't trust you to do it right. Uh, so you've got to go into somewhere. But anyway, that's... So that's the, the private ones are what, 75 pounds? Uh, well, no, no, because the private uh, Chinese trinkets are cheaper than the PCR tests. Okay. So, so we don't know exactly Some what Some firms are charging 50 pounds. Yes. And they cost 50p to make. But that's not what the main point of this particular graphic is, because what has happened, what's been announced today, and if you look on the BBC website, it's really devastating because thousands and thousands of people may have had the wrong results from their PCR tests. Um, so NHS Test and Trace have suspended testing operations provided by uh, Immensa Health Clinic Limited at its laboratory in Wolverhampton. And this is following an investigation into reports of people uh, receiving negative PCR test results after they've previously tested positive with a lateral flow device. Now, do you remember last week we were getting all these headlines about this disparity between lateral flow and PCR? Well, now we seem to be finding out what this is, 
where this is going. So what the government said then was, while investigations are underway into the precise cause, NHS Test and Trace estimate that around 400,000 samples have been processed through the lab, uh, the vast majority of which have been negative results, but an estimated 43,000 people may have been given incorrect negative PCR test results between the 8th of September and the 12th of October, mostly in the southwest of England. Uh, this is an isolated incident attributed to one laboratory, but all samples uh, are now being redirected to other laboratories. So that's fantastic. So what is really, is this really a bad day for the test and trace regime? Um, or is this uh, really uh, about trying to ramp up uh, uh, rhetoric in the media about the number of people that have, uh, uh, you know, that are actually infected? Well, we don't know if we're infected or not because we did a PCR test, came back negative, negative but I might still be infected. Maybe I should self-isolate. It's putting more and more doubt in people's minds and so on. But the bottom line here is we still have no questions in the mainstream media about the veracity of the gold standard PCR test in the first place. And now they're making lateral flow the new gold standard. The problem is, Mike, below the hood of the PCR test, you have the modulation of how many cycles they're running on the PCR test. And if you want to have a bunch of negative results, you run low cycle counts. If you want high positive results, you do high cycle counts. We have no access to that. I personally tried to uh, get that information mm. from multiple doctors, uh, my local uh, health authority, and everybody, it drew a blank every time. Some people didn't even know what I was talking about. Some did, and they did not want to divulge that information. Right. Okay? So we need to, you need to know that because it's not just a test. There's different ways to conduct the test. As far as the lateral flow test, the last thing I'll say, I know we're, we're belaboring this point, but it's important. Lateral flow test is not a diagnostic test. The PCR test is not a diagnostic test. Neither of those two can detect a live virus. That's a fact. That's not a theory. That's not my opinion. That's a fact. Okay? Straight from anybody who's worked on these tests and developed them and developed protocols for these assays will tell you that. And the inventor of the test who won a Nobel Peace Prize, Dr. Kerry Mullis, would tell you that as well. And he did many times uh, during his life. So these are, the, these are the things. These tests are basically driving, Mike, the crisis. They're driving the pandemic. And as long as these tests are allowed to be used in such a mass way, uh, the, 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 the crisis, the state of emergency will continue. And all these bureaucrats are going to be running around with all these different policies and all these different patches and Band-Aid policies and policies on top of policies and making everybody's life absolutely miserable. It's because of the tests. Right, and the key thing you just said there was in such a mass way, because last week, I think it was last week, you mentioned PCR with respect to flu, and you said, God help us if they ever rule out PCR tests for, for the flu. Mm -hmm. Now, somebody then wrote back to me and said, well, hold on a second, they've been running PCR tests for the flu for a long time. And I, I said, yes, but what you actually meant was on a mass basis in the way that we have with COVID-19. So that's the key point. It's PCR has been there for laboratory testing and, and discovering particular proteins and so on for a long time. But it's the way that it's being applied with respect to COVID that is really unique and has never been done before. As a mass test, not yes. been done for anything. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw one last point, Mike. I talked to a doctor who worked on the first AIDS treatment ward okay, uh, in the UK. Right. The one opened by Princess Diana. And I asked him, I said, what if they used PCR tests in such a broad way at that time for HIV? Mm. What do you think would have happened? Think about that for a minute, everybody. Think about that. What kind of mayhem, chaos, and, and absolute panic 
would happen if you used this dodgy test. And it is a, it is a dodgy test because it was not developed as a medical diagnostic test. It was originally uh, as a research tool for anthropology, for forensics, for DNA, for all of these things. One of many tools you would use in an investigative setting. It was never, ever intended to be used for medical diagnosis the way it's been used now. Imagine if they applied that to HIV. What kind of global chaos would we have? It would just be unbelievable. You saw what the panic was like in the 80s right. with the HIV scare. If they rolled out PCR for that, if they, they might do it in the future, these are the things you need to really, really be afraid of. And you've you got to be ready to stand up uh, on the facts on this issue in, in the future, because these people, you, you don't know what they're going to do. Um, okay, well, look, uh, here's The Guardian tweeting this morning. Tell us, have you lost a loved one to COVID-19 who was unvaccinated? So they were fishing for information today. Uh, this is what they wanted. Uh, unfortunately, it didn't go too well for them, as you'll see. Um, so here's uh, one reply. Nope, but my dad had a heart attack after the jab. Also, friends and relatives are in big trouble after their jab. One is now blind. Two others had brain surgery. Uh, and uh, in the same week, and sadly, one passed away. I'm available if you want to write a story on this. I don't think they will. Uh, no, but my mother was placed in ICU after her first shot in the UK. She suffered blood clots. Uh, Stuart said, I haven't lost anyone regardless of vaccination status. I know people who tested positive before the jabs, and I'm saying people now test positive after they've had them. Uh, ben said, 28-year-old from our village suffered a heart attack and dropped dead on the tennis court sh shortly after having a vaccine. Uh, another one here, uh, everyone I know is, who has COVID never came close to a hospital. Large portion of people I know who are jabbed have visited the hospital, some even close to dying from blood clots. Uh, here's another one. Nope, 18 months in. I'm only aware of two people among friends, family and colleagues who've been ill and both of those fully vaccinated. Uh, Ryan said... Uh, were you afraid to put up a poll or would that ruin your propaganda narrative when the results for yes came back in at 0.01%? Uh, so it's interesting that they didn't want to do a Twitter poll. They just wanted to. But anyway, uh, judging by the comments, this tweet has massively backfired for Guardian's agenda. And uh, of course, this is a fair point. It is an agenda. Yeah. I mean, the Guardian's get, having the Hillary Clinton effect on social media when Hillary used to put out these, uh, Boris, all the politicians now, they use social media because they want to get that sort of gratification back from the public. And they're, they're mortified most of the time when they realize they're getting nothing but uh, angst from the public. So yeah, yeah. Uh, not as popular as they think. Anyway, their viewpoints anyway, what the Guardian's pushing. It's definitely an agenda. Okay, let's uh, move back to the United States now. And uh, well, Sky Sports here has a headline, Carrie uh, Irving, Brooklyn Nets guard, says his choice of re uh, to refuse coronavirus vaccination should be respected. Uh, sports people coming under a lot of pressure. Footballers in the UK coming under a lot, a lot of pressure who are, are not having the vaccination. But this is uh, happening to everybody in sport. This is a particularly interesting story. It's also very important, and I'll tell you why. Most of the NBA players, and they're, they're paid very well, more than footballers even in Europe right. um, a, a lot of the times. And so they're basically under a lot of pressure. They're all vaccinated, 80-something percent, right? 88% of the league is vaccinated. Average salary, I don't know what the average salary is, $2 million a year or something like that. The highest paid players that are making 20 or $30 million a year or something like that. So Kyrie Irving is one of the lone holdouts, okay? He's one of the lone holdouts. And originally the players' union uh, for the NBA, believe it, average salary to... Two million. They have a players' union. Right. Who they do arbitration uh, with the owners on behalf of the players. 
they sided with the minority of NBA basketball athletes who did not get vaccinated. They took their side, saying they had their right. So they overrode the league's mandate, and they overrode the league's mandate. Now, uh, so what's happened here is the Brooklyn Nets, the team that Kyrie Irving plays for, his employer, they went vindictive and basically said, well, we don't care what the players union said. You can't practice, you can't play away games or home games. You, you're basically, you can't do anything with the team until you take your double jab. So, and, and so these are very influential people, Mike, and it's very important. Uh, they're very role, big role models as well to kids, not just in America, but globally. Let's listen to what Kyrie Irving put out on social media. Here's a, a, a highlight reel of, of some of the things he said. This is a couple minutes long. It's so important, and he is a, quite an incredible individual to, to say this um, against all of the backlash from the press, the media, uh, other players, uh, other fans, and so forth. Listen to this. You know, I'm standing with all those that, uh, you know, believe in what's right and are doing what's right for themselves. You know, everybody has a personal choice with their lives. Um, you know, everybody has a right to feel a certain type of way. Everybody's entitled to their own opinions. Everybody's entitled to, to do what they feel is best for themselves. You know, and putting me as a hero or painting me as a villain, sort of say, or going against the vaccine mandates, like that wasn't, that wasn't my intent at all. And to be sitting in this seat here and seeing you know, the way that this is dividing our world up, you know, being vaccinated or being unvaccinated, uh, you know, it's just sad to see. Uh, it's, it's creating a lot of division, a lot of confusion, you know, a lot of people saying things that are untrue. Um, we're not giving space for each other to speak. You know, you got doctors out here working hard, physicians out here working hard. To what's going on out in the real world. You know, people are losing their jobs to these mandates. Uh, people are having to make choices with their own lives, which I respect. You know, and and I don't want to um, sit here and and play on people's emotions either. Just use logic. You know, I, I don't. I'm not sitting here to give y'all information, give y'all a whole bunch of you know my wisdom beyond my years and knowledge. Now nah, I'm just here to stay real. I'm always gonna stay true to me, and that's me. You know, this is my life. I get to do whatever I want with this. This is one body that I get here, one God body that I get here. And you telling me what to do with my body, and it has nothing to do with the organization. I'm gonna put that out there. It has nothing to do with the Nets. It has nothing to do with my teammates. This has everything to do with what's going on in our world, and I'm being grouped in to something that's bigger than than just the game of basketball. And you know, you got that that fandom, you know, which is like a religion to people out here. Basketball is like a religion. Entertainment is like a religion to people. They like get so caught up emotionally. It's just like, yo. F and get vaccinated or just leave. You know, we angry at what you're doing, man. And it's just like, nah, that's like, what are you talking about? I'm a human being. I have emotions. I have feelings. I have thoughts, uh, things that I keep to myself, things that I share. Uh, but I'm staying grounded in what I believe in. So, you know, a 15 minute video he put out totally unedited. You just took you some highlights that were really powerful. Um, uh, piece of it. So he bypassed the mainstream media, mm -hmm. which is what you can do now. So the, the, the tools are there for these uh, celebrities or people who have aspirations to be good, you know, role models and be moral and do the right thing uh, and not be corporate stooges like so many other celebrities are, spokespersons, in fact. Andrew Bogut, another NBA player, came out, I think we covered it months ago. Right. He was approached by uh, an agent, sports agent, management company, 
wanting to pay him big money to go out and promote the jab. And he said, all of my colleagues or cohort were approached as well. And they all, a lot of them did. They've, they've done ads and so forth. So this is how far it goes. And this is, this is about bread and circuses at the end of the day. Professional sports is bread and circuses. And I think Kyrie Irving is realizing that if he bows down to the demands of the pharmaceutical lobby, to the, to the political forces, uh, and, to, and he gives up autonomy of his body, he's getting $17 million a year. $17 million a year. And so he's saying no. He's willing to put that on the line, okay? And that's really important. That means that, you know, you could, you could be a, a 20 million a year, 30 million a year, Mike, and if you don't have bodily autonomy, you are a high-paid slave. That's exactly what you are. You're, you're, you're a marquee, limousine-driving slave, basically. And that goes for the footballers, goes for the baseball players, goes for the, uh, the, the, all, all the other ones, the hockey players, and so forth. And you, you, you are not, uh, your celebrity status is not protecting you and allowing you to have the basic fundamental human rights. And that's what it boils down to. So I, the, these holdouts are incredible. So here's uh, one uh, sports management uh, and sports investor here, Joe uh, Pompliano. Uh, so he's defending Kyrie. And so this is what the fans are saying. So many fans have straight away, uh, they've cursed Irving and believe he's incredibly selfish for putting the entire team at risk. Not at risk of COVID, Mike, but putting them at risk of what? Not winning the championship. Uh -huh. So this is where the fans' uh, heads are. This is where the, some of the American population's heads are. They're, it's shocking. They're that detached from the issue that all they care about is whether they're going to win the championship. And they're, so they're throwing this uh, star player, this great athlete, under the bus, basically. One of the greatest players uh, playing in the league right now, in the world, in fact. And so here's what uh, Joe tweeted out. And uh, this is Joe Pompliano, huddled up is his uh, organization here. This is what selfish Kyrie Irving has done, Mike, in the last couple of years. He bought George Floyd's mother a house, okay, paid cash for it, uh, paid tuition for nine uh, HBCU uh, university students, bought 200 plus kids Christmas presents every year, uh, provided 250,000 Thanksgiving meals in New York City, probably more than the city of New York did. Mm clearly, and donated $1.5 to the Women's NBA Basketball Players Association for the players because uh, there was complaints that they weren't, their salaries weren't on par with the men. I mean, so it's sad, Joe's saying, to call him selfish for making a personal decision. So this is an extreme example, but I think it's, it says a lot. So understand he plays for a team sport and ultimately hurts their chances of success, but it's, it's, it's also okay to believe that the vaccine is helpful, yet that everyone can still make their own decision just because you disagree doesn't make them selfish, good point. And so I don't expect this to be a popular opinion. Uh, it's a divisive subject. Some will agree with me, while many will disagree. Everyone seems to be perfect on social media. That's a big point too. Everyone's got this perfect persona and opinion on social media. But here's the thing, Irving will lose out on 17 million this year if he doesn't play. That's ultimately his decision. And uh, as his private employer, the Nets also have the right to tell him to stay away from the team until he is vaccinated. That's their decision. So there we are. There we are with the issue. So the, the question is, Mike, how far would we be, have gone down this road if other athletes of that stature around the world had stood up at the beginning? Right. 
and made their position known. And they, many of them didn't. And so some, some of them, some people did, doctors, journalists, and they got deplatformed, they got canceled. So now it's kind of later, second wave stuff. Now people are coming out. There is some pushback now. Mm -hmm. Joe Rogan and other people that were normally uh, neutral on this issue. Uh, and so now they're coming out very outspoken on it. So that there is hope that the tide is changing. But what about this? We'll go back uh, one slide. What about this vaccine mandate? Joe Biden's vaccine mandate, Mike. Where well, is it? That's a good question. I, I saw uh, what's his redheaded spokesperson called? Jen Psaki. Jen was giving uh, was giving uh, briefings a couple of days ago, saying that you know Joe's mandate is there and it's going it, to and the, the federal mandate overrides any any state law and so on. Uh, and the advice, or the, sorry, it wasn't the advice wasn't the correct word, but it certainly wasn't talking. She wasn't talking about law. She was talking about rules and 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 this kind of thing. And this is more. This is absolutely uh, of greater standing than than laws that the that the local authorities make. That the United States is falling apart. Look at this. Look at this. Where is Biden's executive order mandating the vaccine? Does it exist? This is John Rappaport uh, brought this issue up. Mike, it doesn't exist. There is no executive order. It was never drafted and signed. It was a blag. The White House blagged the country. So she was just lying in her presentation? They then? blagged the country. There is no executive order. All the companies and all the organizations complied with it now for a month because they thought it either had already happened or it was going to happen. And guess what? It's not there. If you go look at the executive orders list, there's a link at 21st Century Wire on that page. You'll find nothing. It was a blag. This is where we're at in politics now. Yes. You make an announcement. This might as well be uh, Xi Jinping, you know, or the Great Leap Forward. Kim Jong-un. Kim Jong-un. <laughs> we're, we're, I'm signing executive order today. Everyone must have the vaccine. And anyone who doesn't, we're going to fine you, whatever. He, he, what was the threat on the fine? Oh, uh, $700,000 per employee. This is just unbelievable. She's threatening people with 700 grand fine. So of course, everyone's gonna to wanna to comply with that. How many people got vaccinated because their employers were scared, put pressure on them, said, oh, I'm gonna get fined 700 grand. Come on, let's do it. This is just the level of criminality at, at the White the House scale. level is off the scale. And where's the, where's the press on this? Where's the mainstream media on this? Are they tweeting out? Do you, do you know anybody that... Uh has had COVID unvaccinated. <laughs> yeah. That's what they're doing. doing straw polls online. Well yes. done, Guardian. Brilliant. You're doing a great job. Okay. Now, if you like what the UK Column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community and there are options to help us there. And you'd be very welcome as a member and that's very much, that support is very much needed. Uh, and uh, also please do share the material on the various platforms. Uh, once again, thank you very much to everybody who's ordered a hoodie. Uh, that's much appreciated. Uh, and also, finally, uh, I just want to mention the symposium that we ran uh, for Piers Robinson's uh, uh, group uh, on Sunday. It's available on the UK Column website, all the individual presentations uh, separate if you don't want to watch the whole thing uh, in one go because it, it, it was a whole day event, sort of, or at least half a day event. Uh, so there it is. Watch again if you want to see it. Now, if you do want to see it and you look, look at uh, some of the... Uh, uh, individual presentations uh, and scroll on down to the show notes. There are there's a whole load of source material as well to back up what uh, the individual presenters are saying. Um, we're still waiting for a couple of uh, 
of uh, sets of notes uh, to put under there, but most of them have uh, the notes available now. Uh, that's a really excellent resource, and it was a very good uh, event. It was. It was a fantastic event, and uh, we encourage people very big deep dives, big deep dives on, on some areas that you will normally hear that level of analysis, yeah. talking about the psychological aspect, the propaganda, the politicization of the propaganda, not just from 9-11, but forward to COVID-19. So a hugely valuable uh, resource, and please share those videos with as many people as you can on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram, on all of these different platforms. Share the links, tell people about it, point them in that direction. It is a really great resource and hopefully we'll be doing more of that. Uh, now, uh, David Miller is an academic that used, used to work for Bristol University uh, and uh, has worked with Piers Robinson on the, uh, the Syrian aspect of propaganda and so yeah. on. Uh, but things haven't gone so well for him in the last uh, week or so. Yeah, so on this issue of academic freedom, this also came up during our symposium on Sunday. Uh, a lot of these people that we had on the panel were victims of persecution from either their institutions or they're being mobbed by members of the press and other vexatious actors uh, in, in the press and government. So David Miller is one of those people. And so they've really been after him and others uh, for a long time. This is a, a, a short interview with Loki, uh, the, uh, the artist Loki, interviewed David Miller about this. Listen closely because this hasn't been released in terms of uh, David Miller hasn't drafted a statement that articulates these points exactly how he says them here. So it's really important. He really describes the nuance of the situation of, of, of the, the, how, how and why he, he got fired and, and what we can do about it. Um, uh, and um, I wanted to make a special point of saying that the university statement uh, given um, last the end of last week uh, says that they had commissioned a QC who had concluded that none of my comments uh, um, uh, broke the law, that my comments were lawful. And, and that's true, the report did say that. But the report also said, and this is important, and I, I, I wanted the university to to make this plain, and they haven't. Uh, they also, the report also said explicitly that my comments were not anti-Semitic. They did not engage or exceed uh, the uh, Equality Act of 2010. Uh, and uh, that's been missing in much of the commentary that there has been. Some of it, I have seen some headlines which said that I have been sacked for anti-Semitism, which is untrue, which is defamatory. And we've had some, some of those headlines changed already. Hopefully, if there's more, we'll have them changed too. Uh, but also, it's been said that I've been that I've been sacked after being after complaints about anti-Semitism had had been made. Well, that in itself is misleading because I was found not guilty of those complaints, and uh, um, of course, that's something which the people who have been campaigning against me are uh, unsurprisingly reluctant to admit. Uh, so that that's been a really very serious uh, assault to my reputation. I, I, you know, as many people will know, I'm a lifelong anti-racist. Uh, you know, the, the, there is not a shred of evidence in any comma, phrase or sentence I've ever said that, it, that any of my comments have ever been uh, anti-Semitic. I'm very well aware of the difference between the Jews as a people and Zionism as a political ideology. These things are different. Many Jews are not Zionists, as you say, and indeed, many Zionists are not Jews, uh, as everyone points out. The, the Christian Zionists, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So the, the the idea that to criticize Zionism as a political ideology or to criticize 
the actions or indeed the foundation of the state of Israel is political commentary. It's not to do with hating Jews. It, it's got nothing at all to do with hating Jews. And uh, that's something which people need to, to recognise, but which, of course... So that's really what it comes down to, right. is that issue. So Bristol University was being pressured by the Israeli lobby and those familiar forces, the same ones that brought Jeremy Corbyn down uh, and had him fired for that. I, I think personally, Mike, it wasn't just uh, on this issue, but also he was, you know, he's touching a lot of third rails. Right. David Miller, he wasn't afraid to tackle controversial subjects like Syria and 9-11 or these types of issues that normally academics will shy from because they're just afraid of the flack that goes with that. But Bristol basically just caved. Yes. And, and that's supposed to be a left-wing university, extreme left-wing, and they completely caved uh, to pressures the lobby. So if he goes to industrial tribunal on this or employer's tribunal, I, I don't see how uh, the university is going to be able to defend themselves on this. So what's going to end up happening? They're going to end up paying well, out of court or, or a, a large sum yes. of money to, to be quiet and go away. Probably a gagging order that's going to go with that. So we can't talk about it, but they'll pay him off. And so who's going to pay that bill at the end of the day? Taxpayer. Yeah, the taxpayer. So the public's going to pay. So that's <laughs> the, the university will get bailed out by the public mm -hmm. for a bad decision they made for not standing up on absolute principle. Very shameful episode uh, in terms of academic freedom, but it doesn't stop there, Mike. Uh, there was a ruling. Well, before we get to okay. that, uh, we, we, there is a campaign here to get a, for his job. Yeah, this, so this is change.org, and I know a lot of people out there are going to say that's a, a woke, uh, progressive website and so forth. Look, uh, he's on there. He's got a lot of support. So, you know, on this issue, we'll say yeah, definitely uh, change.org can be used uh, as a force of good here, definitely for David Miller. Um, and so do check this petition out here. They've already had 28,000 odd signatories uh, for this as well. And so this becomes a top signed petition with just a few more signatures. So support David Miller, follow him on social media. Mm. While he's, he's on there. While he's still on there and yes. so forth. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, okay. Uh, so green fascism then. Well, this is down in Australia. And so Australian professor is fired for criticizing the climate consensus, loses appeal in the high court. This is Dr. Peter Ridd, James Cook University, and uh, I believe it's in uh, Queensland. And so this is an interesting story, Mike, because he went to the lower court and they found in his favor and awarded him 1.2 million Australian dollar settlement for wrongful uh, dismissal. dismissal and termination. So basically he was overheard criticizing uh, the uh, scientific uh, agency that is doing the Great Barrier Reef uh, research and so forth, uh, accused it of being politicized along the sort of extreme climatist uh, agenda. Okay, now because of that, because of those comments, he's been fired from his job. So, you know, th that's a fair comment to make. He's talking about the politicization right. of scientific agencies. I think that's undeniable. So now the high court has ruled against him. So this is a, a, a blow, a major blow for, for academic freedom. And just to tell you what things are like in, Austra in Australia, this came on the wire just this morning. Apologies, we don't have time to have this on, on air. But this was just sent on the wire. Supreme Court decisions handed down in Australia has said that all public health orders in New South Wales have been justified. Bodily autonomy has not been violated. 
nor have any rights been violated as Australia has no Bill of Rights. Wow. Uh, so I guess they, uh, that leaves them out uh, in the cold in terms of basic rights. So uh, that's an incredible, incredible decision. So by the high court of the Morrison government. It just so happens, Mike, that the judge of that, you can probably report on more on this okay. on Monday, yeah. this is a groundbreaking decision. The judge was uh, going for a uh, higher position there uh, with the affiliated with the Liberal government party and uh, was looking for an appointment to a federal high court, same judge right. who, who ruled on, on this New South Wales ruling here. So no rights. No rights. No Bill of Rights, no rights to bodily autonomy. That's what the High Courts, no, the Supreme Court, sorry, the Supreme Court in Australia has ruled just yesterday. Okay, uh, let's move on to the Green New Deal then, because Boris is very excited uh, this morning. Uh, more than £5.6 billion pounds of foreign investment has been uh, uh, made available for green projects in the UK. Uh, and this is all about uh, uh, securing the launch of uh, Boris's 10-point plan. So there it is on the screen, the 10-point plan for a green industrial revolution, building back better, supporting green jobs and accelerating our path to net zero. Um, so let's just run through just quickly uh, the, the main points. Offshore wind. Uh, so producing enough offshore wind to power every home, quadrupling how much we produce, 40 gigawatts by 2030, uh, when the wind blows. Of course, when it doesn't blow, it's zero. But anyway, that's fine. Uh, and uh, supporting up to 60,000 jobs. So that's very exciting. Um, and uh, so they've secured around 1.5 billion pounds for investment into the offshore wind industry. Uh, then we've got hydrogen. Now, hydrogen, what happens when you burn hydrogen, Patrick? Tell me. You get water vapor. Uh, oh. Which is the worst uh, greenhouse gas according to the official narrative? Uh, man-made CO2. No, it's water vapor. It's water vapor. So if we're, if we're replacing man-made CO2, which is a relatively uh, small effect. A trace, on things, a trace right? gas. And we replace the CO2 with water vapor by, by developing hydrogen economy. What happens to the greenhouse effect, according to their narrative? Well, it, it, their narrative seems to fall down at that point. But anyway, that, anyway, let's move on. Electric vehicles, uh, of course, that's a big part of it as well. Um, so they're committing 20 million pounds to increasing on-street charge points for electric vehicles and providing 50 million pounds to support charge point installations. Great. Uh, then public transport, uh, cycling and walking, uh, making cycling and walking more attractive ways to travel. Well, of course, one of the ways they're doing that is promoting the idea of the 15-minute city. Uh, and that, of course, is all about keeping in people in their own ghetto. Uh, so you won't be allowed out of your own area. Uh, everything will be made available to you that you possibly could need. Uh, then, of course, there's money for Jet Zero and Greener Maritime as well. What else have we got here? Homes and public buildings, making our homes, schools and hospitals greener. Um, that's good. So uh, there's going to be uh, all kinds of money for uh, one billion for upgrading schools, hospitals and council buildings with energy efficiency measures and committing 222 million to upgrade socially rented homes. Um, so that's good. We'll come back to this in a second. Uh, and then we've got carbon capture, 19 and a half million pounds for that. Uh, and then what have we got? Nature. Well, we're going to stop farming because we don't need to feed anybody in the net zero world. Um, so uh, there's got to be money for that as well. And of course, the most important thing is innovation and finance. Um, so uh, there's going to be as a, a one billion pound net zero innovation portfolio, financial portfolio. So that's all fantastic stuff. So what did Boris have to say about that? 
he said, uh, since the launch of our 10-point plan, businesses across the country have attracted international investment in the industries of the future, ensuring we build back better and greener. Uh, and then he didn't go on to say this, but he would have done if he had been asked, or he said it quietly to himself. He said to himself, oh, by the way, gas boilers are banned after 2035. Don't worry, though, your annual gas bill will be 50,000 pounds by then, so you won't miss it. <laughs> so so this is basically the uh, the excitement for Boris, uh, the price of gas going up, so you won't need a gas boiler anymore. And so he will be announcing in a few days' time that, uh, that bo gas boilers in all homes are banned by 2035. The Queen, she had something to say about this. She said, it's so exciting. Now, why would she be saying that, Patrick? Well, of course, the Queen benefits from offshore wind farm. Uh, Nine billion pounds over the next decade or so is what she's likely to receive. Uh, the Crown Estate's first auction of its seabed licenses uh, in a decade uh, is going to earn them rough, roughly £900 million a year for up to 10 years. Um, and, of course, under the current rules, uh, she only gets part of the money, uh, 25%. Charles, of the Charles money. gets a bit, doesn't he? Well, it just goes to the royal family. Okay, it so, doesn't, that's, it's, so that's why it's, Charles is so green. He's going yes, to be a millionaire of course, out of Of course, because they, they, they claim to own the foreshore. And if they own the foreshore, then that's where the uh, offshore wind turbines will be. And so... Uh, is that why the front page of the mail today says, Queen's green anger. She criticizes world leaders not committing to the climate summit enough. It's really irritating when they talk, but don't do, says... The Queen, so that makes sense based on what you just said. Right. So she's very happy about this uh, this whole deal. And, I thought uh, she was just, uh, you know, an environmental uh, warrior, you know, a social justice warrior. Uh, no. Apparently she's not. She's just raking it in. She's a, <laughs> but that brings us to warrior. pigs, Patrick, because, of course, related to this is the fact that uh, with gas prices being as they are, uh, and there's no CO2 available uh, for uh, for the, um, killing the pigs and, and, and other cattle and so on. Uh, but uh, it's not, it's a bit confusing exactly what the situation is with pigs. Yeah, and apologies, we don't want to confuse the viewers. This is not about MPs' expenses. We're just talking about pigs here. This is on the oink files. So uh, a U-turn, Mike, a swine U-turn, apparently, on the government side. It was all Brexit a couple of weeks ago. Oh, but not anymore. Uh, things have changed. Westminster acts to avoid the mass cull of pigs by allowing trained foreign butchers to come to work on temporary visas. So you, first we had the lorry driver shortage. And then we had a, a, a shortage of people working in abattoirs. In abattoirs. And now it's butchers. So try to work that one out, Mike. Uh, we need to bring in more butchers so we don't have to slaughter the pigs. It, it can be a bit confusing, I do admit. Farmers say the combination of Brexit and COVID-19 has sparked an exodus of Eastern European workers and caused a shortage of butchers and abattoir workers, which you just said, leaving the pigs to back up in barns and fields across the country. So what are they saying? That there's uh, too many pigs and it's going to be too expensive to, to feed them swill? That's right. So what, they're going to have to slaughter them? Yeah, that's right. How are they going to do and that? That's already happening in the United States, by the way. Right. So this is, uh, this is a great reset. Yes. We're in the Great Reset, folks. It's just being done here under the guise of other crises. And one has to ask the question, Mike, whether those crises were put into motion intentionally in order to make all of this happen in terms of reimagining our economy. Pay close attention, ladies and gentlemen. We're telling you exactly how it's done right here. The government was reluctant to give into industry demands, now hoping 800 extra butchers will be enough to avoid the 150,000 pigs, which will be sent 
to waste. I can't believe they would waste anything uh, in this economy. No. But apparently they might dump them off uh, sea. You know, they might, they'd send them to China. China will have them. Stick yeah. them on a boat and sell them to, uh, to Xi Jinping in China. They like pork, don't they, with their sweet and sour, lots of different dishes. China. So, like, you know, but who are we to, to pontificate on this issue? So there's going to be, this is going to save the bacon of Britain, isn't it, Mike? It's going to save Britain's bacon. But, you know, we're, who are we? Just a bunch of media talking heads. Let's, let's see what the people who really know about this stuff uh, think about it. Let's see what the Greasy Spoon Brigade has to say about this. Saving the bacon, and these are definitely committed Brexiteers, and yes, celebrations have spontaneously broken out across the country, Mike. There we are. He's particularly happy, that guy. They like a good fry up. And yes, they're very happy about this. And then over to Northern Ireland. And uh, this is Stephen Noland, uh, BBC uh, Northern Ireland, BBC Ulster radio host here. And what did he have to say about it? Well, apparently he's given up bacon, Mike. Uh, and he's uh, having banana creme. A chocolate banana cream ice cream for breakfast now. So that's right because he doesn't like bacon anymore. Yeah. To, uh, full disclosure, that's a September fourth, twenty twenty tweet. But we thought it was just too good not to show. Right. Okay. Let's uh, let's move on to uh, uh, the G seven uh, now. If you've been following the UK column for a while, you will know that up until what is it about a year ago, uh, we had a king in England. Most people think we had a queen, but we had a king, and his name was Mark Sedwell. And both, actually. Yes. Uh, and he was responsible for just about everything in the country, ultimately. Uh, now, he left the role of uh, cabinet secretary, as well as being the uh, national security advisor, as well as being the head of the British Civil Service, as well as being a whole host of other things. Uh, he, he retired from that role. Um, and, uh, well, where did he go? Well, one of the places he went was Rothschild's bank. Uh, he also is doing various uh, work for uh, uh, government sort of soft power organizations. Uh, and well, it turns out he's also doing some work for the G7. Um, so he was speaking yesterday. And let's just have a listen to this. There are three main points I really want to make today about our recommendations. The first is uh, around resilience more generally. At the national or sovereign level, sound economic management to improve productivity, competitiveness, and economic inclusion will also improve economic resilience. So reducing the debt burden to restore fiscal contingency, investments in skills, in public health, in infrastructure, in tech, in cybersecurity, in climate change adaptation, are all worthwhile objectives in themselves, but will also improve uh, economic resilience. Second, that we now need global level action to tackle the emerging monopolies in key sectors. Whether those monopolies have arisen through the natural selection of the market or through state intervention or both. Whether those are for good or bad reasons, monopolies lead to overdependence, and that in itself leads to increased vulnerability to shocks. Now the answer is not to pull up the drawbridge, turn back the clock, onshore, reshore, or nearshore. The answer is in diversification, in codependence and well-governed, open global markets. And it's that key point about governance that the panel has focused our attention on. We've identified, for example, in critical minerals, in semiconductors, and in digital data, the emergence of monopolies, and these are the oil, steel, and electricity of the modern economy, um, are, uh, are beyond the capacity of any individual state to regulate. There are parallels here uh, with, for example, the effort in the United States a century ago to regulate uh, the big 
um, uh, combines, uh, Standard Oil and Carnegie Steel, for example, or indeed in the way the international community had to tackle uh, the crisis, the OPEC crises of the 1970s. And that's really the key point. This requires action at the collective global level to be addressed successfully. So there you go. Uh, the G7 now calling for collective global action uh, to regulate monopolies. Well, first of all, who, what kind of monopolies are we talking about? He was talking about semiconductors, for example, but some of the other monopolies, we could say Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, have, are effectively monopolies in their own individual tech spaces. Um, but they don't need to be regulated because they're already 100% in bed with the governments. Governments just don't want to regulate them in that way uh, in terms of taking away their monopolistic powers. Instead, they're giving them powers. But he's now, so we've had the conversation over the last six months from the G7 about creating this globalized uh, corp corporation tax regime. He's now wanting to take this a step further mm. and, and actually create a, new, a whole new global governance mechanism for dealing with monopolies. And of course, these are monopolies that, that the current governments in the West have encouraged to develop. Mm -hmm. So, so anyway, that's part of what's what's going on. You got any thoughts on that? Well, I just want to say that uh, it, this is all on the back of a problem. So a crisis. Oh, we've identified a problem. We need a solution. Don't worry, we've got the solution. Here it is. This is the embryonic beginnings of a global government. So again, problem, reaction, solution uh, all the way. So let's look at another problem, uh, because here's Mark Carney, if you remember, while he was governor of the Bank of England, who said, uh, we will not get to net zero in a niche. It requires a whole economy transition. And right at the center of that is the concept of the central bank digital currency. Uh, and uh, well, let's just remind ourselves about that. Uh, a group of seven central banks together with the Bank for International Settlements published a report some time ago, I think in uh, April or so, identifying the foundational principles necessary for any publicly available central bank digital currencies to help central banks meet their public policy objectives. Uh, so for what would those be? So central CD, CBDCs, potentially a new form of digital central bank money, uh, combined with the use of distributed ledger technology, blockchain in other words, by, by other terms, uh, in part because cash is rapidly disappearing uh, from in their jurisdiction. Well, we'll see in a second, it's not happening, not, if cash is disappearing, it's not happening as a natural thing. But anyway, before we get to that, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm going to inflict a few seconds of of Rishi Sunak on you because he was so enthusiastic about the fact that G7 has just endorsed uh, CBDCs uh, that he, he produced a little bit of video and it is cringeworthy and possibly buckets are required, but we'll just uh, give that little bit of warning. Have a listen to this. Today, I'm proud to say that under the UK's presidency, the group of the world's seven most advanced economies, the G7, is launching a set of public policy principles for retail central bank digital currencies, CBDCs. Central bank digital currencies could be a digital version of money, a bit like a digital banknote that could be used alongside physical notes and coins. Unlike most of the digital money people use daily today, it would be issued directly by a central bank, like the Bank of England in the UK. And governments and central banks across the world are working together, looking into what having a digital currency might mean in practice. This includes... Right, look, I'm really, I'm really disappointed you cut off 
the Chancellor at the Checker, Mike. I was really enjoying. That. Well, the, the enthusiasm for CBDCs was becoming, uh, you know, it was uh, it was gripping me. So, so anyway, look, uh, here's the point. Uh, what are they actually doing? Many people have, have, have highlighted the issues with uh, central bank digital currencies, not least the fact that, of course, uh, once we are using central bank digital currencies, we're handing over complete control of our lives to the centralized authority. No more anonymity, no cash. You can't give cash to your family members without there being some sort of a record or restrictions and so forth. Well, the biggest, the biggest uh, problem with it, of course, is uh, as we've seen over the last number of years, this drive for behavior change. Um, and you know, everybody talking about uh, China and China's social credit system. Of course, once you've got a central bank digital currency as your main form of currency uh, in place, then forget about what China's doing. It becomes uh, <laughs> you. You are China. Well, indeed. So you know, if they decide that you're maybe a bit overweight and you shouldn't be allowed to buy sugary drinks, then you won't be able to buy sugary drinks. If they decide that maybe it should time to stop smoking, you won't be able to buy uh, your cigarettes because you go into the shop and your card with your C central bank digital currency doesn't work on it anymore. But how are they going to get rid of cash is the question. And uh, well, we came across and we were sent this. So thank you very much to the person who sent this to me. Uh, this blog from the uh, International Monetary Fund, this is going back to February 2019. But this, I think, is absolutely relevant here uh, because they're talking about how to make negative interest rates work. Now, we are in a state of, of negative or nearly negative interest rates uh, perpetually at the moment, have been for a couple of years now. Uh, but how would they make them work and what do they mean by making them work? We'll have a look at this uh, because they give uh, a nice uh, a nice example here, a nice illustration. Suppose your bank announced a negative 3% interest rate on your bank deposit of $100 today. So that's your cash deposit in your bank. You've got $100 in your bank of uh, cash dollars. Suppose, suppose also that the central bank announced that cash dollars would now become a separate currency that would deprecate, or sorry, depreciate against uh, e-dollars the central bank digital currency by 3% per year, okay? Uh, they go on to say, the conversion rate of cash dollars to e-dollars would hence change from one to 0 0.97 over the year. After a year, there would be 97 e-dollars left in your bank account. So you had uh, uh, $100, now you've only got 97. Mm -hmm. uh, it goes on to say, if you instead took out the $100 cash today and kept it safe at home for a year, Engaging it into e-money after that year would also yield 97 e-dollars. So you've got a, a conversion rate between them. Uh, and so this is, seems to be, uh, I'm going to suggest, uh, how, how cash will be effectively made unpopular. Because obviously if you're holding on to cash and on a daily basis, you can no longer go and buy something with that cash because it's losing value every single day or every single year, whatever it happens to be, then of course that will have a chilling effect on the use of cash and people just won't use it anymore. The, the, the biggest thing that has basically brought the level of cash spending down was, was the fake made up uh, lie that uh, COVID-19 spread on banknotes and all the small, even small local businesses all virtue signal and put signs up in their windows saying, we're safe, uh, no cash, uh, electronic payments owned. There's still some businesses doing that, even though the World Health Organization has basically walked back the lie that it had initially uh, been pushing, that fomites were spreading on cash and uh, yeah. it wasn't safe to use cash, it was dirty, it was COVID could spread. There's still a lot of people, Mike, that believe that, you know, unfortunately, and businesses are still abiding by that. So that was the big accelerant 
for this great reset policy of a cashless society and central bank digital currency. But negative interest rates will have uh, a huge effect on that as well. Now, when they do roll out central bank digital currencies, uh, you will be able to take your C CBDC card and shove it in a cash machine and get cash out it, initially. Initially. But that obviously is going to end. It's diminishing uh, value. What about homeless people? Are they going to be giving a, a sum up machine from the, the government where they could take uh, donations or? They're already, they're already doing that at the moment. Uh, so or buskers, I guess they're doing that already at yes. the moment too. Yeah. They're already giving uh, the homeless people uh, uh, cards, uh, card readers, and so on. So wow. <laughs> and, anyway, uh, let's let's end uh, on energy, and uh, we'll we'll start off with a graphic from Putin. Now we're going to come on to Putin in a second, but uh, he was being accused here by uh, Hadley Gamble uh, from CNBC of uh, using energy as a weapon. Of course, that's with respect to to gas prices in, in Europe and and so on. But what is the situation in the relationship with energy in, in the United States? Oh, sorry, with Russia at the moment uh, and in the, with the United States. I mean, is the U.S. Russia's enemy with respect to energy at the moment? Well, we'll get to that in a second. But we just wanted to show you uh, this is a pretty apt cartoon. It's from The Spectator. Uh, and so you see two people, British people here at home in the cold winter. You see, Mike, they're all bundled up. They've got hats, scarves. And uh, the television saying Putin... Energy shortage has nothing to do with me. And they're saying, he's just gaslighting us. So that's what uh, the BBC will be saying. So, of course, Vlad is uh, going to have a little chuckle because this isn't exactly true. But the reality is, Mike, that uh, we'd all be better off if that Gazprom truck came rolling in to save us this winter. But it's not coming. And guess why? Brussels doesn't want it to come. The U.S. doesn't want it to come. America is denying, uh, basically, they're trying to put a wedge between Europe and Russia right. uh, with the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. They don't want cheap, affordable, continuous market stabilizing gas to come into Europe. So instead, we have this full-on energy crisis, this explosion in wholesale energy prices that we're seeing right now. A big contributing factor is that Europe's being cut off from Russian gas, okay? And Russians being blamed as using energy as a weapon. But let's look at that relationship. So the U.S. and Britain are working really hard to keep R Russian petroleum uh, or pe uh, hydrocarbons from getting into Europe. But what about America? Well, let's look at this. Well, we just took a, take a look at the, uh, the, the, this is the U.S. Energy Information Administration here, Mike. Uh, what are they saying here? Let's take a look. And so this is from 1998 here. You can see we're going to go along this graph right up to the present day. You can see it's going up. This is basically what Russia sells to the United States in terms of petroleum products, not just oil, but also other, other products uh, as well. And you can see when Biden was elected, here we are, 2020, after the Biden administration took power, it's record high, record high levels of Russian oil and petroleum being bought in the, by the U.S. So the U.S. is importing a massive amount. Let's just bring in Joe uh, to sort of we got to get him in the loop. He's, our apologies, he's a little bit slow. He's going to get there eventually. There's a, so what's Joe, So this happened under Biden's watch, Mike. This is under Biden's watch. There he is. He's almost there. Thanks, Joe. A little extra time for you. Okay, let's put this into context here. Pay attention, Joe. There you go. Uh, oh, we'll go back. Um, oh. Went double. Oh uh, yeah, it has. So so anyway, you just keep talk, keep yeah. talk it through. 
Yeah, so um, yeah, so we'll go back, come back to screen here yeah. while that's getting into position. So basically, uh, a lot of people aren't aware, Mike, that uh, the, the, the U.S. is buying over 800,000 barrels per day from Russia. Okay, so Russia's meant to be the enemy. They've got sanctions running all over the place between Europe, between the EU uh, and Russia. And meanwhile, uh, it, the U.S. is buying record levels of Russian oil in the U.S. So let's take a look at this league table right here. So in 2020, Russia was just behind Mexico there. Canada is obviously the biggest oil seller there. So, but look what happened uh, this year. Russia is now number two among foreign oil suppliers uh, to the United States. So of course, Vlad, happy. He's, he's having a laugh there. Joe, on the other hand, is still uh, sleeping uh, over there. So U.S. imports and refined products, 844,000 a day. This is as of May of 2021. Uh, so actually a day, yeah, from, prior, from the prior month. So number two, oil seller to the United States. I thought the U.S. was uh, energy independent. Uh, this is no, because we're too busy. United States is too busy exporting energy to, uh, to Europe. And they get more money for that, yes. right? Of course they do. So of course, this is why the U.S. doesn't use all, all of its uh, supply domestically. Um, so let's come back to, uh, to Putin, because uh, he was speaking at an event yesterday. Uh, as I say, uh, Hadley uh, Gamble was, uh, was asking him questions, but he gave a bit of a, a keynote uh, before she asked the questions. And he said this, what is happening today in the energy markets of Europe is to a certain extent a man-made result of short-sighted policy. Well, absolutely. I don't think there's anything we could criticize there. Uh, he said, uh, I think that the United States is making a big mistake when it uses dollars as sanctions tool. Uh, this is what they're actually doing uh, because they make it impossible to pay for products under sanctions with US dollars. Uh, our clients simply cannot pay us in dollars for the products. And so he asks, what happens next? Uh, well, of course, what happens next is that they have no other choice than to switch to other currencies in their settlements. Um, now, he did go on to say that they don't want to do that. They want to continue using dollars. Uh, but he's making it absolutely clear that if the US uh, doesn't stop messing about with, I guess, with Nord Stream and so on, then, then this is something that they are going to continue, but also with uh, various sanctions and so on. Uh, but then uh, during the, the questioning session with uh, uh, Hadley Gamble, he said this, besides the US, sovereign debt is growing. Congress has once again increased the sovereign debt ceiling. What does this mean? Money printing. Uh, what could be the result? Higher inflation. This is probably the first time inflation in the United States is growing at a speed that's not been seen for quite a while. Uh, what will the US economic authorities, authorities do with this huge debt? What, uh, what will they do? Manipulate the dollar and depreciate its value? What will that do with the debt? And of course, uh, th these, are all, these are all valid points. Um, so, uh, uh, you know, he, many people are, uh, you know, criticize uh, Putin for, but actually he tends to speak uh, sense in the, most cases. The truth. Yes. The truth. Unlike our political leaders, I'm, I'm not, we're not trying to promote Vladimir Putin, but this is, situation is getting really ridiculous. Yes. Everything that he mentioned, everything that we've mentioned in the show, how many problems have we mentioned today, Mike? The cause has been the government's reaction to supposed virus of uh, COVID-19, the pandemic of COVID-19. Everything from the, the cashless issue, the energy shock, all of these things, the, sh the shortage of this, the shortage of drivers, whatever, interruptions in the supply chains, and now this uh, inflation. How much debt have they put on their books? 
in the last 18 months. It's just unprecedented. More than in decades before. Yes. So it's COVID. Again, it's the gift that keeps on giving. And again, one has to wonder. One has to wonder. It's been mighty convenient unless all of these things are just a coincidence. Yes. And just to finish off uh, this section, um, we obviously have seen that uh, uh, the gas prices have resulted in UK gas companies going out of business. Uh, well, in fact, seven more energy suppliers in the UK likely to go out of business. Two were, of those seven were announced yesterday, I believe. Um, so uh, That's adding to the seven previous that, that went under. That, that's absolutely correct. Um, and so, of course, what happens then? Well, people end up uh, with no gas supplier. They've got to go to one of the big companies. Uh, and what kind of tariff are they getting? Well, we've mentioned on the program already, it's going through the roof despite the government's uh, uh, price cap. But it's not just in the UK. In the in the EU as well, in the Eurozone, uh, German energy retailer Automa declared itself insolvent yesterday. Uh, so Automa Energy uh, is based in Brandenburg. It announced insolvency uh, yesterday or the day before. It told its customers to seek another provider. So uh, uh, that's not so good. In the Czech Republic, uh, Bohemia, uh, Bohemia Energy has shut off gas, shut off gas to 900,000 people, right? And uh, they should be eventually reconnected via the state-owned owned power company CEZ. Um, and uh, as for the EU, it's, uh, they're saying that they are creating a toolbox against energy price increases, uh, and that consists of things that don't really affect the or don't uh, jeopardize the free market, uh, the, the internal markets in the EU. And so if there's not really anything in the toolbox other than the suggestion that maybe some kind of centralized collective purchasing of gas uh, to help keep prices down, or perhaps they might uh, offer people, uh, individuals and, and small businesses, some kind of uh, uh, energy bailout. And they're talking about caps over there as well. But really, it is not a UK problem. It is much broader than that. Yeah, and it's it's nothing to do with government, right? This just happened on its own, right? It just happened on its it own. It just happened yes. on its own. It was an organic uh you know, natural occurrence in the markets, right? Nothing to do with our crony capitalistic uh, corrupt government and all the glad-handing bailout seekers, no? Uh, no, nothing to do with that and nothing to do with COVID-19 either. Uh, this is what Build Back Better is all about. Uh, and, you know, we have been, and Patrick's mentioned it a couple of times today, we've been talking about the, this concept of the Great Reset, the World Economic Forum, and this, this kind of thing. It is absolutely presented by the mainstream press as a conspiracy theory. Uh, but you look at government policy uh, over COVID-19, a large part of it was designed to destroy the economy as it, as it was in order to build it back better in the form that, strangely enough, def was defined by Klaus Schwab in his, uh, in his Great Reset book. Um, that it, must just be a coincidence. But is it building back better? Or is it building back worse? Do they have a crystal ball in the future that says it's all going to be perfect? Well, take a look at how things are plan uh, unraveling right now. Yes. It's not building back better, and it will not build back better. Um, to, to, who, who's, whose roadmap are they going by here? This has never been done before. They're playing, they're, they've turned the planet into a giant experiment. Okay, this is unprecedented. That's exactly what you're seeing. It's a political experiment. It's a cultural experiment. It's a medical experiment. It's a medical experiment. It's an economic uh, experiment. All of these things. That's what's happening. That's what's been happening now for the last going on. will be in the two-year mark in not, not too dis distant future. Okay. And it's time that uh, 
people said, no, we're not having that. But anyway, we must leave it there for today. So thank you very much for joining us today. Patrick, thank you for joining us. Uh, we will be back at the same time, 1 p.m. on Monday. Uh, hope you have a great weekend and we'll see you then. Bye-bye.